I've had this uh, I've had this quote from Martin Luther that's been going through my mind. I couldn't remember exactly how he said it, but I knew I'd come across it sometime before in my life. And uh, I found it on the internet. Luther said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. That has been ringing in my ears. Now, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't know the exact quote, but I, I had remembered coming across that and, I'm, and I've been thinking about this. Some may question... Brother, why spend time dealing with schooling and educating our children? And why spend time with the television? Why spend time with those things? I mean, after all, shouldn't we be dealing with spiritual things? And I thought, you know, this this is at the heart of some very important spiritual matters. And in fact... The devil and the world are attacking through both of these fronts. Now, in and of themselves, they're they're somewhat neutral. But when used in the hands of the world or in the hands of the devil, they become instruments that can be extremely destructive. And they are today. They are. And and you know what? Anybody in this room can simply look and observe and see that the majority of the things that come through the television, the majority, I'm not saying everything, because there, there are exceptions, no doubt about it, but the majority of things that come through the television are harmful to your soul and to the souls of your children. And you know that's true. There's nobody here that would raise their hand and deny that fact. Because all you have to do is, you don't even have to get cable. All you have to do is go and just go through the stations just about any time during the day. And I guarantee you, you will find things that are diametrically opposed to the principles taught in the Word of God. And you know that's true. You know it is. And with regards to the schooling situation, you and I both know that we can go into certain schooling scenarios in many different places in our country and we can find that being taught and being espoused in the schoolrooms. And it just doesn't have to be in a building like in the schools over here. It can be in people's homes. It can be with homeschooling. It can be in private schools. But you know that Satan seeks to deceive our children. And you know He will use and does use the schools, whether it's homeschooling, private school, public school, He uses it 
to deceive our children. And if you don't think that's so, then you haven't opened your eyes to the fact. Because it is so. Folks, in the last hundred years, know what positions many of the schools have taken with regards to abortion, with regards to homosexuality, with regards to a number of issues. You know there is a spiritual decline in that area. That's not even debatable. It isn't. You know that that's a fact. That's why I deal with this. Because I believe that those two fronts... Listen, you know what? On an average, your child sleeps eight hours. Maybe they sleep a little more, maybe they sleep a little less. But on an average, your child sleeps eight hours a day. That's a third of their life. You know, eight hours, 24-hour days, that's a third of it. If your child goes to a private or to a public school, very likely... That consumes about eight hours of their day. Now, when you figure the time spent getting there and the time spent coming home and the lunch, I'm including all that. That's just not the time where they're actually being taught in the schoolroom. Seven to eight hours a day. That's another third of their life. Now, folks, you've got to consider this thing takes up an entire third of their life from the time that they're in kindergarten to the time they're in 12th grade. And even beyond that, if they go into college, that is an incredible amount of the, the time in a child's life. And you know what? Statistically, you can look at the numbers, folks. you got the Internet today. You can go out and look at these numbers. Four hours a day, average, a child watches television. Four hours a day. Folks, that's a sixth of the day. If you figure sleeping, schooling, and television, you know what that? Out of a 24-hour day, 20 of your hours is taken up right there. Two of the most significant inputs into your child's life is their school and their television viewing. Now, I realize in most families here, you don't let your kids watch television near that much. But you know what? It is still a powerful influence. If both of those are such powerful influences today, I can guarantee you Satan is trying to get his hands on them. And you know he has to a great degree. That doesn't mean that a discerning parent cannot protect their children in both of those areas. But we need to be equipped to be able to protect our children in both of those areas. That is what I want to do today. Folks, I want you to know up front, I am not bringing this message to simply attack with televisions next week. And so I'm done dealing with that for now. But as far as the schooling today, I am not looking to attack any specific method of schooling. I am simply wanting to look at the facts. And I want to equip parents to be able to make wise decisions when it comes to to the upbringing and the education of their children. So that's where I'm coming from. If you guys would, please, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, I want to begin reading at the very first verse in that chapter. 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15:1 And Samuel said to Saul. Now you guys Samuel was the prophet. I mean he was the main prophet in this time. And the king in Israel was King Saul. So Samuel and Saul lived at the same time. Samuel was the prophet, Saul was the king. 
Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. The prophet is telling the king, listen to what God has to say. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek, now Amalek is not a man. Well, he was a man, but that's not what specifically talked about here. This is the tribe that came forth from Amalek. He's speaking about a people group here, the Amalekites. God has taken note that the Amalekites, what they did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. And that's true. When Israel came out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them and did evil to the Israelites. They were no friends of theirs, to be sure. And so God says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And yes, Lord, or yes, yes, folks, the Lord is is a God who would do such things. And he's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Lamb. 200,000 men on foot. He has a formidable army here, folks. And 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites. Now the Kenites are another people group here, which are kind of intermixed with the Amalekites. He says to them, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So you see, they're being spared because they showed kindness to Israel and the Amalekites are going to be destroyed because they did evil to Egypt. So the Kenites, they did. They were afraid of this 210,000 armed forces coming against them. So the Kenites deported from, departed from among the Amalekites and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So he killed all the people except one. He spared King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. But Saul... And the people. Now notice that. Saul and the people spared Agag. Saul was just as much doing this as the people were doing it. And the best, they didn't only spare Agag, they spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Now, Samuel's off somewhere else, and the word of the Lord comes to him. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and this is what God says to him. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And I'll tell you why Samuel was angry. You know what? I believe Samuel loved Saul. He did. And, and he... He wanted Saul to succeed. He wanted Saul to do well before God. And he was angry. He cried to the Lord all night. Folks, he was crying to the Lord for the sake of King Saul. And Samuel rose early to meet. Obviously, he did not prevail. No matter what he was, if he wanted God to relent, 
God was not willing to. God rose, or Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And you know what? Somebody, it was told Samuel. Somebody comes to Samuel and tells him something. They say, Saul, King Saul, came to Carmel and behold, he has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on to Gilgal. Saul concerned about his own glory, doesn't he? He's, he's out there setting up monuments for himself. Not one for the Lord, for himself. He's pretty proud that he got a victory here. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You see, guys, Saul's acting like nothing's wrong. I don't think he thinks anything's wrong. He thinks he did the commandment of the Lord. You know, he's, here comes Samuel and he's all happy. He's got this victory. He's been setting up monuments for himself. He's feeling pretty good about everything. Here comes the prophet of God. Blessed be you to the Lord. I mean, he's just happy. I performed the commandment of the Lord. He thinks everything is just okay. It's just fine. It's like it ought to be. And Samuel stops his little party very quickly. He says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Saul said, they. Notice that. They have brought them from the Amalekites. Folks, we were just told Saul and the people spared Agag and all these animals. But Saul is now kind of deferring from himself. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord and he doesn't say my God or our God. He says your God. Like Samuel, you know, you know, he sees the wrath. He sees that Samuel's anger. He sees the anger in him. He's, like, he's trying to calm him. You know, listen, the reason we didn't kill everything is because we wanted to offer a sacrifice. Samuel, to your God. I mean, settle down. I'm doing this for your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He just didn't even want him to go further. He didn't justify himself. He Saul, stop. Just shut your mouth right here. Because I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what the Lord said to me this night. He said to him, Saul, said to Samuel, speak. And Samuel said, though you're little in your own eyes. Now, that's actually, that, that's actually questionable that he really is saying that there. Uh, uh, the King James, New King James, actually, actually would seem to turn it towards he, he doesn't see himself small in his own eyes anymore. But he did in the beginning. But, but that's, he's lost that. And I would say because he set up the monument to himself, that's likely... The, the, the better rendering there. But anyways, it, it says, you're little in your own eyes and you not the head of the tribes of Israel, or are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel. See he's still. I think he's honestly perplexed here. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have fought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and ox and the best of the things to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The fat of rams is they would offer the fat of the rams on the altar. So again, it, it's a reference to, to the sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also, he has also rejected you from being king. I, I know you guys are looking at this and saying, how does this possibly fit in with schooling our children? I want to draw a principle from this and, and just hang with me for a second. We're going to walk a path here. How many of you guys are familiar with the term pragmatic or pragmatism? I see one, two, three, four. Pragmat. How many of you have heard the word, even though you may not know what it means? Pragmatic, pragmatism. Well, let me tell you what it's about. Being pragmatic is being willing to use whatever means are necessary to accomplish whatever goal I want to accomplish. You guys get that? You hear people talk about the ends justify the means. And what they mean by that is my end is worthy. And so I'm justified in using whatever means I want to to get to that end. That's what pragmatism is all about. The first, I'll give you an example if, that didn't, if you guys still aren't clear on it. The first time I was exposed to, to the word pragmatic or pragmatism that I can remember was when I was an early Christian and I was reading many books that were written by John MacArthur. You guys know MacArthur has really taken issue with this seeker-sensitive movement, the, the seeker-friendly churches, the church growth movement. Are, are there any other names that it goes by? The what? The emerging church. It's got various names. This is a pragmatic church movement. What they what they do, folks, they set the goal. Do you know what their goals are? Numbers. Numbers. That's right. They want numbers. They believe that the best thing that they can do is to attract as many people in as they possibly can. That, that's their hope. That's their desire. Now, folks, they are willing to do just about anything to achieve this. Just about anything. And you know what they'll do? If you guys have watched this movement at all, they'll take their polls and they'll hand out their questionnaires and they'll study the data and they'll, they'll observe all the statistics. They'll analyze this thing. And then they'll develop methods based on all of this analysis that they believe will most tend to attract unbelievers into the church setting. And you guys know some of the things that they are willing to do to attract these numbers. If preaching 
is likely to discourage believers from coming in, well, then we're going to shorten the sermons way down or we'll get rid of it altogether. Folks, there are some churches that are getting rid of it altogether and they'll substitute a a, a Christian comedian or they'll bring in these. What's this bunch of weightlifter guys that will bend steel bars And, and guys, you know what they do? They have some little little washed down gospel presentation in the end. And they justify all that because they were able to get all these people in and have this enormous crowd. Or, or they'll hire some speaker that he's smooth and he's upbeat and always positive and never speaks of sin and never speaks of hell. You see that sometimes advertised on the, on the billboards, you know, no condemnation here. And, and they, you know what? Because that attracts the lost people. And so they're willing to do just about anything. But guys, check this out. This is at the heart of pragmatism. A willing, what they do is they, they have a goal in mind that they believe is worthy. And after all, isn't getting people under the sound of the gospel worthy? I would say it is. In and of itself, it is a worthy goal. But they see, folks, what they do is they make their goal more important than their principles in obtaining that goal. You see that? That's what pragmatism is all about. It puts the end. It puts the goal as the primary thing. Pragmatism is basically where you are goal oriented. You are goal driven. You are not principle driven. That is a very important distinction, folks. Very important. Now, guys, I want to compare that to Saul. Because I'll tell you something. Saul is on the same page as these folks. I want to draw some some parallels. You see what he did? In the end of this, I have an offering for the Lord. This is just like pragmatic church growth people. You know what? They want to be able to bring to the Lord big churches, big numbers. They'll say that. They'll say they do it unto the Lord. They'll say that they want to do it to please the Lord. Now, it may have much more to do with setting up monuments to themselves than what they want to admit because... Saul didn't want to admit that that was the reason either. He's saying, no, it's for your God, Samuel. It's for an offering. And, and by the way, isn't an offering a good thing? It is. There's nothing wrong with an offering. But what he says is God is more delighted with obedience than with this goal that you have in mind, with this end. And that, that, that's the same thing. You see the parallels here. The, the pragmatists, they're not worried about how they get there. They're not worried about their principles. They, they see an end in sight that they think is so worthy that they're willing to get to it irregardless of what they have to disobey to get there. That's, that's the point. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, he doesn't say sacrifices are bad. He doesn't know where we ever told that a big church is bad. 
But what he says, what happens very often, folks, you and I are guilty of this far more than we know. We set our eyes on this thing that we want, that we feel like we need to have. And in and of itself, we realize it's a good thing. But then we will sidestep God's laws to get there. And we feel justified in getting there because the end is the primary thing for us. And we feel like because it's a good end, we're willing to bend the rules a little bit to have it. And that's what the price... Folks, there is, I don't think that there is any more serious charge in all the Bible than the one given to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, where he is charged to preach the Word. And what the, what, what the church growth people do is they sidestep that, folks, because they feel justified in, in not being fully obedient there because they're able to drag in all these lost people. And they feel justified to get there. So, what, what I want you guys to see, you know, this comes up in our life. It'll come up in our life repeatedly. Let me, let me give you an example. I, I climbed in the car today and we had a CD plane. And I asked where it came from. And I was told that it was given to us. And I said, oh, really? That, that was nice that they... You know, I was thinking to myself, bought us this CD. And then I was told, no, it wasn't bought. It was copied. And I thought, oh, we, we're not going to keep that. If we really like it, we'll, we'll buy it. Folks, you know what happens as Christians? We feel like good, solid Christian music is something that God obviously would have us to be singing and to be listening to, right? See, what, we, what happens is we set that goal in mind. That is an acceptable offering to the God or to God for me to have solid, good, biblical music. But then you know what else God says is to obey the authorities, to obey the government. And the government tells us that it's illegal to copy because of, of copyright laws. But you see, folks, we will justify. We will. It, it, you know what it is, folks? It's this partial obedience mentality. I will sidestep one of God's laws in an objective or aiming at an objective. And be, folks, this is the point. We need to be principle driven people, not end oriented. God is more interested in us proceeding towards our goals and walking principled lives than He is simply that we get there and ignore His Word in doing so. Let let me give you another example. We get this idea, being on time is a good thing. Obviously, God would want me to be to church on time. Right. But then you know what? We can find ourselves getting up late and then we're speeding on the way to church and we're breaking the very laws that God says we ought to be obeying. And again, we feel justified in in sidestepping God's laws and bending the rules to get to that objective that we feel is so worthy. And in and of itself, it is a good thing. Folks, 
it can it can come up in a lot of places. We feel like, well, we need to give. Here's a worthy cause. But then I don't pay my property taxes or my income taxes to do it. You see, folks, that's not that's not right. It is good to give, yes, but it isn't good to get to that goal by laying aside good, solid biblical principles. You know, Ruby and I were, were looking at a house and, and uh, you know, we were, we were coming across at this guy. We were, we were basically try, trying to squeeze every last drop out of this guy. And it got down to where the guy was almost pleading with us that he might be able to keep one of his beds because he was going to throw in all of his furniture. And, and I, I got the, Ruby and I both got the feeling bad because I thought, you know, here's this, this potential right here. Well, certainly, I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's children. Certainly, He would want me to get a good deal and be prudent and everything. Yeah, but folks, He doesn't want me squeezing people. He doesn't want me to taking advantage of people in a bad situation. And see, we can justify and we can curb these principles. Well, now, how does all this connect with our children? Simply this. You and I, can set up this this goal for our children that in and of itself is good. We want our children to be educated. We want our children to be to be successful. I mean I do. I want them I, I don't want them to not be. I don't want them to be not educated. I don't want any of those things. I want them to excel in everything that they give themselves to. In and of itself, folks, that is a worthy objective. But then you know what? I can pursue the education of my children. I can pursue their excess, their success by sidestepping God's principles in His Word. I can and I can feel justified in doing so because I feel like, well, certainly God wants my children educated. Certainly He wants them to be able to go out into the world and be able to get a good job and to be able to give and, and support things that are worthy causes and to be able to take care of their families. Certainly those are good. And you know what? It's like all these other things. In and of themselves, they are good. But God is never interested in us obtaining that goal and sidestepping all the other biblical principles along the way. We're never justified to get there irregardless of the means we use to get there. Do you understand? This, this, is, so, this is right at the heart of where you and I walk as Christians. Being principled, obedient people. At every step of the way. We can never get to the point... You guys, Saul, he was adamant. I have obeyed! You know what, folks? He did go out and attack the Amalekites. He did devote some things to destruction. But it was partial obedience. And folks, partial obedience is disobedience. That's the key. The church growth people, they do have a concern about the Great Commission. They do go out there and make disciples. But you know what they forget? Teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. They don't go there. You see, partially, partly, but not all the way. And that's right where Samuel the prophet steps in and says, 
obedience. You see, folks, it's a sacrifice issue. We want this thing to offer to the Lord. You know, we want, we want to be able to offer this sacrifice. We want to be able to offer this giving. We want to be able to offer this certain music or this singing. Or we want to be able to offer our children who have achieved a certain mark. And we want to be able to offer that up to the Lord. The Lord says to us, it is not your sacrifices. It is not your offerings that please me near as much as it is your obedience. Listen to my word. So now, I want to apply this to the schooling of our children. I want us to, to equip ourselves in this area. The first thing, we have been speaking repeatedly over the weeks from Ephesians 6.4 about fathers. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, would you guys agree, because Paul says fathers, because Abraham is commended for leading his family, because you see predominantly the father in the book of the Psalms addressing his son, do you guys believe that fathers, have, have we seen enough from the Word of God to believe that fathers preeminently have the responsibility for their children? Would you agree to that? Absolutely. It's, it's scriptural. Fathers, you're to nurture. Fathers, you're to educate. Diligently teach your children. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, all of their education is your responsibility, right? All of it. Is your responsibility. Would you, would you agree with that? Now, okay. Now, would you guys agree that within that scope of education includes many things? It includes math. It includes reading. It includes history. Would you agree that all education, all training, would include such things as those? Do you believe that? Now, folks, listen. One of the things that happens is we, we have been desensitized by this world to have a wrong mindset in a certain area. We can view sitting with my children and opening up the Bible in a devotional time as something I as a father have responsibility for. But somehow math and reading and history and science are not. Simply because when I open the Bible, it's spiritual and math is not spiritual. Folks, that simply is not true. Christ is to have preeminence in all things. Do you realize every single thing in this world revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ? Every single thing. If you have some part of your life that He has nothing to do with, get it out of your life, folks. Get it out. Isaiah 44 says, I am the Lord who made all things. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. It is God's purpose that Christ fill all things. That includes science. That includes math. You guys, just think with me. History. God has ordained all of history. 
He is providentially controls every single movement of every hair on every head, let alone every other item that are in your history books. Science, every single thing that is studied in science, He created, He designed it. His mastery, His art, His intelligence are in all those things. Math. He has set in motion all the rules that govern our universe. Every mathematical principle He created, He designed. You better believe He is at the heart of everything. And with regards to everything you teach your children, fathers, you have a responsibility. Now, stop right there. That doesn't mean that fathers can't delegate that responsibility to others. It doesn't mean that a father can't designate other individuals who teach and instruct their children. It doesn't mean that. You obviously can. I mean, the, folks, all you got to do is go to the Bible and you realize that, what, Timothy, who was he taught by? A godly mother and a godly grandmother. I mean, you go, you go and look at the, at the Proverbs. It doesn't simply emphasize that it's got to be, you know, the listening and the adhering to the Father's commandments. But it says, listen to your mother's teaching as well. A father can delegate responsibility to a mother. A father can delegate responsibility to a grandmother or to a teacher. But listen, it's still the father's responsibility. It never, when you delegate responsibility to another person, it never means that you no longer are responsible. No, you are very responsible. That's why fathers are spoken to first. You never escape responsibility just because you hire or bring in or ask somebody else to do the instruction or the training of your child. Never, never, never. Fathers, you are responsible to the end. And no matter what your children are being exposed to, and if you say, well, I just don't know, you have a responsibility to know. You have no responsibility whatsoever at any time to allow your children to be educated and to be instructed by people you don't know and by people that you don't know what curriculum or what, what materials are being taught to your children. You are responsible, fathers. You are entirely responsible. Now, guys, as much as you're responsible for who teaches your children... And for what is being taught to them. Irregardless of whether you are teaching your children firsthand. Or you have. Delegated somebody else to teach them. You are still responsible. To nurture them. To bring them up in a nurture of the Lord. To bring them up in the training of the Lord. To bring them up. In the discipline of the Lord. Of the Lord. Now fathers and mothers and parents. Is something of the Lord? If it is against the Lord. I just want you to answer that question. Is something... Can you possibly have training which is of the Lord? If that training is against the Lord. Is it of the Lord if it's against the Lord? No. I mean, I hope that that is plainly obvious. Cannot be the Lord if it is against the Lord. In Matthew 12.30, Christ says, Whoever is not with me 
is against me. You guys understand, there's no middle ground. You are either for Christ or you are against Christ. Teaching is either for Christ or is against Christ. Sometimes we have this idea that things neutral. We can have this idea that, well, math class is, and I'm talking math class whether it's at home, whether it's private or public school. We can get this idea, math class is just kind of a neutral thing. God isn't in it. Well, you know what? If you're teaching your children math and God isn't in it, then you're teaching it wrong. Because He ought to be center of everything. He ought to be supreme and central and have preeminence in everything. That is God's purpose. If you teach math right, you will teach them that it is God who has ordained all this. I asked my children the other day, do, do the teachers in the Abeka program talk about God all the time? And Charity said, all the time. They're constantly making reference to God. And you know what? That's the way it should be. And I want to know that. I mean, I'm responsible for what those teachers are teaching my children. And I want to know. I want to know what's being said. I want to know what's coming across. Because you know what? Folks, we can get this idea. And we become so desensitized. We, we get this feeling that, well, if my children go off to school, or if I'm schooling them at home, and I teach them something, or they're in this classroom scenario where God isn't being spoken against. He's not being attacked. In fact, you know what? They don't even talk about God at all. So it's okay. Who told you that's okay? You didn't get that from the Bible. In fact, you know what? What is the very nature of the sin in Romans chapter 1, folks? What is it? They suppress the knowledge of God. It's not that they speak arrogantly against Him necessarily. It's that they simply take Him out of the picture. Their sin is that they don't acknowledge God. And you know what? When you put your children in an environment where God is not acknowledged, and you know there are some homeschool curriculums that don't acknowledge God. Some. A few. There are some private schools that leave God out of the picture. Many private schools. Don't assume the school is Christian just because it's private. And folks, the fact is, the agenda of the public school system, it is a humanistic approach. It is an atheistic. And by atheistic, I mean atheistic. He's out of the picture. They don't tend to put God in the picture. But this, this is not debatable. What I want to emphasize to you guys is this. When you have an environment into which you put your children... And you feel like it's okay because God is not ridiculed. He's not blasphemed. He's not spoken against. They just don't really speak about God. You remember this. The sin that is described in Romans chapter 1 is they didn't acknowledge God as God. And they didn't give Him thanks. They didn't acknowledge Him. 
And do you know what happens when we find ourselves in an environment where we don't acknowledge God? It wasn't that they simply turned their face towards Him, raised up their fists and said, we hate you, or this or that or the other thing. It's what they did is they did not acknowledge Him. And because they took Him out of the picture altogether and they suppressed the knowledge that they did have, do you know what God did? He gave them up to sexual sin. And He gave them up to a debased mind. And He gave them up, folks, to all sorts of unrighteousness. And when you put your children in a school environment that leaves God out of the picture, and God is actively involved in giving them up to sexual sin. In giving them up to debased mind. In giving them up to all sorts of unrighteousness. Folks, you've got to see there is a connection here. There is a connection. We cannot think that we can stick our children in that kind of environment and that they will not come out burned because it is God who sets Himself specifically against those who leave God out of the picture. And look at the, look at the way it flows in, first, in Romans chapter 1. He gives them up to sexual sin. He gives them up to... Folks... Sexual sin is running rampant in the school systems, private and public. I'm not picking on one over the other. It's a fact. It is a fact. All you have to do is look at the statistics. It is a fact. Is it any wonder that when God is left out of the picture, that the school systems go in the direction of advocating homosexuality and condoms over abstinence? It's because God gives up those who reject Him and push Him out of the picture to a debased mind. Homosexuality is a debased lifestyle. And it is running... And I, Guys, I realize different private schools and different public schools are, are different. Not all of them are the same. But folks... I, I did a little research on the internet. Statistically, statistically we're speaking, only about 10 to 15 percent of those who are teaching in the public school system hold even remotely to any Christian values. And you know something? You know that 99 percent of the people that might wander in here off the street and tell us they're Christians probably in the end we would be somewhat skeptical of just simply because though they might say they're a Christian, there are obvious and blatant things that don't line up with the Scriptures. How, how fast when it comes to our church membership would we resist adding somebody, but how quickly we'll take any sort of wild testimony from people in the school system and feel that we're justified because... Well, they're Christians. Yeah, but we wouldn't let them in our church. But you're okay with that. Folks, hypocrites abound out there. And you put them in an environment where, you know what? The best Christians do not have freedom in the public school system to do the things that they might want to do. In 1962, formal prayer was stricken from public schools. In 1963, you could no longer officially teach the Bible. You cannot teach the Bible as fact in the public school system. You cannot. 
It doesn't matter how Christian your teacher is. They cannot do it by law. Now some, you might have your stormies who, I don't know if she's breaking the law, but that wouldn't be breaking God's law if she did that. Folks, these, these are the facts. If you leave God out of the picture, does the psalm not say that when it comes to the wicked, God is not in all of their thoughts? It is not simply enough to stick your children there. You are exposing them to an environment that God says He gives over. Do not be surprised if you put your children in that environment and God gives them over to sexual sin and debased thinking and to all sorts of unrighteousness. Because they go together. This isn't my word. All you've got to do is sit down with Romans chapter 1 and it comes screaming at you. That environment is deadly dangerous if you value the souls of your children. If you value them. If you value them. Folks, I have it too. My goal, I want my children to succeed. I want them to. I would love that my children succeeded academically. I would love that my children succeeded in music, in song, in obtaining scholarships, in sports. I mean, I would love to see them excel. But I am warning you, parents, if you set that up as your goal and you do not heed God's principles in obtaining it, hear me, God is more interested in your obedience in these matters than in the fact that your child becomes successful it's better your child doesn't become successful and you adhere to godly principles and biblical ways than to try to obtain that by setting a goal before you that you feel that you have to obtain irregardless of the means in obtaining it. And by the way, statistically, if you look, you can find the statistics are out there. Children who are homeschooled score 30% on average better on ACT and SAT scores. That's a fact, folks. That's just a fact. So don't feel that in order to get the best education for your children, it's got to be outside of the home. Because you know what? Statistically, it's not the case. Statistically, it's just the opposite. The, the next thing I want to talk about here is evolution. Evolution is widely taught in our school systems today. I mean, it is taught as fact in every single public school. And it is taught as fact in many private schools. And it is taught as fact in some homeschool curriculums. You know, there, there are humanists that homeschool too. It's just not a Christian thing. But evolution. We can kind of look at that and, oh, well, you know, again, we've been so desensitized to it. Have you guys ever gone to your Bibles and just looked from Genesis to Revelation how many times the Scriptures speak about the fact God is Creator? Oh, folks, it is. I did that study this week. It is inundating. I can't even give you what the tip of the iceberg. Maybe you don't think this matters, folks, but God thinks it matters. You go to His Word 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nehemiah 9, 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Psalm 102. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Isaiah 42, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it and gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 45, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 48, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Jeremiah, this will be the last one. Like I say, folks, I am just hitting the smallest Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At, that, at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. You guys, in Psalm 1, The righteous man is portrayed there as a man who will not sit in the seat of the scoffer. I simply want to ask you guys this. Fathers, you're to train your children, nurture your children, discipline your children in the Lord. Would a good father or a good mother who themselves as a righteous man or a righteous woman, would not sit in the seat of a scoffer, would you put your children in the seat of a scoffer? Would you? Should you? Should you? If you, as a righteous person, are described as one who would not sit in that seat, is it spiritually healthy for you to put your child in the seat of the scoffer? You be careful how you answer that because if you say, no, that's not spiritually healthy. If I as a righteous man would not sit in that seat, I certainly would not 
poison my children by putting them in that seat. Because remember, you befriend scoffers, you become like them. Bad company corrupts good manners, folks. You who are friends of the wise will be wise, the proverb says. Now listen to me, folks. In Second Peter chapter 3, it says in the last days there will be scoffers. Do you know what those scoffers deny? They deny that Christ is coming first. You know what the second thing is they deny? That God created the heavens of old. And that He formed the earth out of the waters and separated the earth from the waters. It calls them scoffers. Do you realize every single science textbook in every single public school in this country teaches that very thing? If a school is public, it must teach that as fact. That isn't to say that they can't say some things about creationism. But it is illegal in this country in a public school setting to teach your children that the Bible is fact. It doesn't mean you can't mention things that are in the Bible, but you cannot teach them as fact. That is a fact. And the fact is, that is in the school books, in the public schools in this city. The Bible describes those who teach such things as scoffers. Now listen to me. The Bible tells us they are scoffers. The righteous man will not sit in the seat of the scoffer. Parents, are you raising your children in instruction of the Lord? if you will place your children in the seat of a scoffer. Don't you believe for a second that exposing your children over and over to this mindset that God did not create the earth, that it came from a big bang. Folks, it is deadly poison to the souls of our children. God emphasizes throughout His Word that He is the Creator. And it is an important fact. It is something you are led to again and again and again and again. You know. Let me ask you this. Christ is to have preeminence in all things. Is He not? Is Christ preeminent where the Bible is not taught as fact? He's preeminent where the Bible He is not. Is Christ preeminent where prayer is not allowed? Calling upon Him. Is Christ preeminent where He is not given glory for having created everything? Christ is not preeminent there. Remember this. If you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. If something is not exalting Him as preeminent, it is against Him. Am I making this up? I'm not. You cannot claim to have preeminence where Christ is not given the preeminent seat. You cannot claim to have preeminence where Christ is left out of the picture. You cannot claim the preeminence of Christ where they don't care for His Word, they don't care for prayer to Him, they don't care that He created. You cannot. And you know what? Romans 1, again, I am going to plead with you parents. 
God gives people over to sin when they do not acknowledge God and when they suppress what should be known about Him and He gives them over to sin. And all you have to do is look, folks, wherever God is taken out of the picture, God is doing just what He says He's going to do. And if we think somehow we're going to achieve this goal, and we're going to get there, and we're going to ignore God's principles in trying to achieve successfully educated children, folks, I'm concerned about the souls of our children. And I'm not saying these things this morning I'm saying them to warn you and I'm saying them to equip you and I'm saying them because God's Word says it. And I'm I'm concerned. I am concerned. And I'm afraid. And if you care, if you value your children's souls, I believe you have to give weight to these things. I believe you have to. I believe that they should have incredible weight with, with the decisions that you make. Folks, One of the things that I've been trying to set forth in everything is the ultimate goal of education is righteousness. The ultimate goal of education, the ultimate goal of parenting is Christ-likeness. Can we possibly say that we are striving to obtain that goal with our children if we subject them to scoffers? If we subject them... Listen, the public school system... Again... It varies depending on the school you're in. But homosexuality is being set forth. It is being set forth as a normative lifestyle in the public schools. That cannot be argued. It can't be. Is that engendering righteousness in my children? Is evolution engendering righteousness and Christlikeness in my children? Is taking the Bible out of the picture engendering righteousness in my children? Remember, 9 to 8, Hours out of the day of your children's life. Do you think... Can I tell you something? One of the, one of the premier secular humanists from, from the 1930s who signed the Humanist Manifesto said this, Secular humanism is an attempt to function as a civilized society with the exclusion of God and His moral principles. During the last several decades, humanists have been very successful in propagating their beliefs. Their primary approach is to target the youth through the public school system. Humanist Charles F. Potter writes this. He is a humanist. He is an atheist. He says this. He owns up to it. Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American school is a school of humanism. And he says this, What can a theistic Sunday school's meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of all the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? Charles F. Potter, Humanism, A New Religion, 1930. John J. Dunphy, another humanist, writing in 1983, says, The battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humanist values into wherever they teach. The classroom must 
and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity together with its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism. This is fact. There is an agenda. There is an agenda. I'm not trying to needlessly scare people. Do you know something? We are to bring up our children in the discipline of the Lord. If our children go largely undisciplined for eight hours out of their day, just remember this, a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. Eight hours. You say they're not left to themselves, they're left to teachers. Yes, they're left to teachers that don't have the same morals, they don't have the same character, and they don't have the same standards that you have as a parent. As soon as you let your child out of your control under a teacher who has different value system and different, different moral standards than you have, you have just given your child up to that moral standard. You have. You are to stay in control. You are responsible, parents. You are responsible for every single thing your child is being taught. Do not believe that you can segment eight hours, five times a week out of your child's life and think a Sunday school class and a once in a while time of devotional is going to correct that. This secular humanist knew he's won the battle. If you parents think that that in the end is enough, Lead your children into truth and into righteousness and to ingrain godly discipline. He knew different. He knew he can eradicate Christianity through the public school system, even if you're determined to bring your children once a week to Sunday school. Do you guys believe? That we can sidestep these matters. You, you know, on top of all this, you've got friends. We talked about this last week. One of the predominant things in the book of Proverbs that we should warn our children about is their friends. A companion of the wise is going to be wise, folks. And a companion of fools is going to be fools. A companion of fools, the Scripture says, are going to be harmed. And you know what you have? School systems filled children that come from homes where God is not honored. They're not raised in any scriptural principles. And what the, God, what the Bible says is that the good morals that you instill in your children are going to be corrupted by corrupt influences. And you can say, well, I regulate that. You don't regulate it for eight hours if you send your children off outside of your control. And you have to admit, you don't have control. You don't know what they're being taught. You don't know what they're being exposed to in a private or a public school. You don't know. But when they're in your sights, you do know. You don't know what they're being taught. You don't know who they're befriending. Just because you won't let them spend the night or run around with the people after school does not mean for eight hours during the day, five times a week, they're not being exposed to those influences that you don't want them to be around outside of school. And yet they are. You know they are. Good manners will be corrupted. The Bible says it. It's going to happen. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You, you, you cannot prevent that. One other thing that I would say, evangelism. Folks, the Great Commission is given to the church. The church is comprised of believers. We never, 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 ever want to bring a child of ours who is dead in trespasses and sins, who is a son of disobedience, who is 
in the power of the devil and think we're going to stick them in a public school system or a private school system or in any kind of environment that is corrupt and think that they are going to be light there. They are not going to be light. They are going to be corrupted by the corrupt influences of the world that they're put amongst. That's what the Bible says. Good manners are going to be corrupted by bad companions, folks. It's, it, lay it down as a rule. The Bible says it. We can never get to the place where we think we're going to be an exception to the rule. We can't. Preeminence of Christ. Well, I know I've... I've said much. But parents, I'm wanting to plead with you. I have the same goal. I want my children to be successful in this life. But I'm not going to sit them in the seat of scoffers. I'm not going to. And I'm not going to put them in an environment where God is left out of the picture. Not even for one math class. I don't care if they have if they have three Christian teachers who teach them the Bible and then they go into three classes where they have the Bible, where they have no mention of God whatsoever. I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because you're flirting with Romans 1 disaster if you do that. God gives people over. This is why we can't escape the reality of the, the, the consequences here because God is actively giving over where we're left out of the picture. And why? Why would any Christian parent want to risk that with their children's souls? Why? Why? That's all I want you parents. I want to equip you with, with these, this thinking. Why? Why? Let's pray. Father, I want our children to be saved, and I want, Lord, I don't want them to be successful, necessary lawyers and, and doctors. Lord, I want to raise up an army of, of godly wives and missionaries and pastors and, and men and women that will be light and, and salt in the midst of their workplaces. And Lord, that's what I pray for the next generation. And I pray, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to hold up one another. Encourage one another. Strengthen one another. Guide one another. Encourage. Bear one another's burdens. Lord, that our children might be well-pleasing in Your sight. Father, I want my children to be an offering that I can lay upon the altar. I want to offer that sacrifice but I don't want to do it like Saul did it. Bending your rules and ignoring what you've said in your word. I don't want to, Lord. Lord, I'm too guilty of that in too many ways and probably too often with my children already. I've, I've, I've reasoned and justified my own rebellion against your word too many times. And I don't want to do it, Lord. I want to be kept from it. I want to be prevented from that path. Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, our help in ages past, help us this hour. In Christ's name I pray.